Um, hey, one, one writer and philosopher once said, uh, yesterday is history, tomorrow is mystery, but today is a gift, which is why we call it uh, the present. Uh, actually, that was Master Uwe from Kung Fu Panda, one of my favorites. Um, point being, there is value in being present to the moment at hand. There is significant value to being present to the moment at hand. In fact, in all of my parenting glory, and for those of you that are newer here today, I, I have six children, and somehow in the midst of all of my faults and failures, they're all pretty decent, nice human beings. But probably my biggest failure, and I say this with all sincerity as a parent, has been my inability to model contentment in the present. I would say of all of the things that I've probably got wrong as a parent, I've got a lot wrong, probably the most significant one is this. I have struggled to model contentment in the present. I have made little monsters who are nonstop asking me what is going to happen next? What are we going to do later? What is happening for dinner? What can I watch next? When's the next game night, Dad? Are we going to take a trip soon? The other day, I'm laying on my bed and my six-year-old Judah, in the scope of five minutes, asked 23 times, I counted it, 23 times what we were going to do next. Finally, I looked at this kid. I grabbed him and his, he's got a big head. I grabbed his big head and I looked at him and I said, listen, is it not enough to just be here with me, man? Like a six-year-old can handle that emotionally. But, but that's why I said, I'm like, can you, can, is this just not enough to be here? And this is the problematic tendency that many of us have. Now, why do I say that? I say that because union, being with in the present moment is the entire aim of Christianity. Whether you are coming from a Catholic background, whether you are coming from a non-denominational background, a Presbyterian background, it doesn't matter. The entire goal, the main point, the priority of the Christian worldview is to be with, to be present in the moment with contentment. It's never been about the next thing to do or the end result or the next step or the product. The entire goal of the Christian faith is to enter into divine union with this triune God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. We see this from the first book of the Bible in Genesis where God is walking with his people. We see this at the last book of the Bible in the book of Revelation where God says there is no more tears, no more crying, no more pain. The old order of things has passed away. The new has come. I will be with my people once again. That is the ultimate culmination of all things. But then you look at the center and probably most significant part of the story where God says, I want to show you what I'm like. He comes as Jesus, Emmanuel, God is with us. We see him resurrect from the dead to be with us even past the point of earthly life. We see him ascend to heaven and the Holy Spirit is poured upon his people so that God can be within us to be with. Not to be shaped by what has happened in the past, not to be overly consumed about what might happen in the future, but this laser focus on union with the one giver of life, the sustainer of breath, the creator of the cosmos, and the bringer of all joy. The goal of it all is union, which is why our fifth theological paradigm that we've been talking about in this latest series, Deconstructing Faith, is this. The goal of spiritual formation is divine union. If you've been a part of Mosaic Church or if you plan to in the future, you're going to hear probably seven, 
seven different lines again and again and again and again and again and again and again. These are our theological paradigms that sound very simple, but yet when you start to watch the lives of people who call themselves Christians or Jesus followers, when you watch the American church, you go, I'm not sure, even though that sounds right, I'm not sure I actually believe this. And the fifth theological paradigm is this. The goal of spiritual formation is divine union. Now, this is super important, not solely because we believe that God loves to simply be with you, but because when you are with someone, and you know this, especially you married folks, when you are with somebody nonstop, you begin to talk like them, you begin to sound like them. In really freaky marriages, you start to look like them. That's the weirdest thing. But, but to the watching world, you start to sound like, feel like, right? Act like the person that you are spending nonstop time with. This is, in fact, the act of spiritual formation or discipleship. We do not become like God by trying harder or thinking deeper. We become like Jesus by divine union, which is why the goal of spiritual formation is that, divine union. Now, this is somewhat problematic because to the watching world, to the city of New York, Christians at large are not perceived to be like Jesus. Right? The, the, the Barna Group, which some of you have heard of before, has done some research. And among young non-Christians, which Sunnyside's got a lot of them, among young non-Christians, nine out of the top 12 perceptions were negative. The common negative perceptions done in surveys include, the present, include that present-day Christians are judgmental. 87% of non-Christians, younger ones, millennial, millennial and younger, judgmental, hypocritical, 85% said hypocritical, old-fashioned, and too involved in politics. And so what we're seeing is the way, the way that the world experiences the church, the way that the next generation perceives the Christian life actually points to the reality that maybe, just maybe, the goal of our spiritual formation actually hasn't been divine union. And so the question that we have to ask, if we're going to be really responsible people trying to follow the way of Jesus among the nations of New York, we have to ask, what have the goals been? Historically, what have the goals of spiritual formation been that have the watching world seen something different, feeling something different, and hearing something different than Jesus? The way the world experiences the church, the way the next generation perceives the, to the, the Christian life, points to the reality that the goal might be something different than we actually think it should be. And so in the Gospel of John, and what Ashley just read for us, is that people are starting to grow skeptic of Jesus mainly some religious leaders, which we now know as something we call Pharisees. And so Jesus squares up to them and says, listen, I, I get how this works. This is the damn paraphrase. I, I, I get how this works. You need testimony for validity. You need somebody else's testimony to believe me in all the stuff that I'm proclaiming right now. Makes complete sense. Makes complete sense. Someone can't testify to themselves, which is why you all should have listened to John the Baptist. He was talking about me for years, and you just didn't pay attention to him, or you did, and you forgot. That should be enough for you based on your systems that you created, but not mine. He says, I don't take human testimony as the most profound thing. In fact, my proof comes from a different place, from a different being. And so religious leaders, 
Right, this is, again, Dan's paraphrase of Jesus. Religious leaders, you study the scripture to find life, and yet now life stands in front of you, and you don't want anything to do with it. You study the word to find the word. Gospel of John says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. Right? The Jesus often was known as the word. He goes, you study the word to find the word, but now the word stands in front of you, and you have completely missed me. And Jesus is starting to show us what was true back then is potentially true still today. That though the goal of this is, is to be with me, you've missed me. You've been duped. And Mosaic, I don't, I don't want to miss the goal. I don't want you to miss the goal. And I think the stakes are probably too high for the city that we love if we miss the goal. And so we need to be shrewd and we need to be keenly aware and observant of how we as religious folks throughout history have missed it. And so the first way we've done this poorly is we have fallen into something that I would suggest is the temptation to be perfect. It's the goal of moral perfection. For so many of us, there is a temptation toward perfection. For those of you who potentially have not considered the way of Jesus very seriously, maybe religion was a cultural thing, but you haven't thought too deeply about it, and that's okay. That's a lot, that's a lot of us in this room. For those of you um, uh, that might live with a secular worldview, this drive towards perfection comes from wanting to look perfect, to wanting to be the perfect mother, needing to be the perfect uh, girlfriend or boyfriend, the perfect leader in your industry. And it's potentially why so many of us spend so much time with social media where we're able to, you know, form filters and profiles of perfection. And for those of us in the room who value religion, who've tried to do this Christianity thing, the temptation toward perfection takes on a really different form. We all of a sudden have these moral expectations that we place upon ourselves, where we want to be the best spiritually, where we want to be perfectly kind and perfectly charitable and perfectly generous and perfectly wise. And the temptation comes from this faulty theology that says, I can act my way into salvation and relationship with God. But the temptation to focus and be, the temptation to be perfect forces a focus on external behavior. We get really consumed with external behavior. And, and this is important. If somewhere along the way, this has become the need, the need to be really good, the need to be perfect, the goal of your spiritual formation is no longer union, but morality. Right? And this is what a lot of churches will do too. A lot of churches will tell you that the, the aim, of the reason you put your kids through re religious education, the, re the reason you show up to church on Sundays is morality, better morality. But it backfires every single time. If this is the goal, it backfires. And here's how. If somewhere in my psyche, all right, if somewhere in my psyche I believe that perfection leads to salvation and acceptance, then what I do is I create a benchmark for myself in all different areas. Right? I, I create a benchmark in my, my physical life, in my emotional life, how I treat finances, well, how I, how I engage with the religious community, how I engage with my neighbors. For, for example, if I'm really spiritually mature, I will be incredibly kind throughout my day. It's my aim, right? Kindness is a, is a fruit of the Spirit. Galatians tells us this, and so I better become Captain Kindness. Now, now, some of us are wired this way, right? Where we just 
we just don't have the self-control <laughs> or the discipline. This is me. So I'll start the day off, right, with the goal of being Captain Kindness, and I'll be really kind to a man and my wife, and I'll be kind to two or three of my kids, but then I start running late. And I start running late for my day, and so by the time I get on the F train, um, I, I see that the dude that clearly doesn't understand the unspoken subway rules, who has kept his backpack on and is just hitting everybody and anyone that's on, on the side of him, and I am just trying my hardest not to say anything, and I just can't do it. I just can't do it. By the end of my track to Jackson Heights, I look at the dude and I'm like, hey, 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 as I move by him. Right, and so, so I've set the bar, but I just can't hit the bar. And because I can't hit the bar, there's some humiliation. Right, there's some humiliation. Or, or you actually do have the self-control. You actually do have the dis- discipline. And so you do. You actually get through the day on your own efforts, being as kind as possible. You even kind of grit your teeth and go, oh, when you leave the train, God bless you in your backpack. I'm, But here's what happens in a very pharisaical way, because you've done it on your own with your own discipline, you've become independent. In a very pharisaical way, you have detached yourself from God. And we talk about this all the time. You were created for dependency. You were created for a dependent relationship with Christ. And now because of your own efforts, your own discipline, you've all gone on your own independent way. You've done it yourself, but in the process, you've disconnected yourself from the source of life to begin with. And so now you're kind. You just did it without the king. And so many of us walk through our spirituality this way, but it's, it's bankrupt. A focus on external behavior will always either humiliate us or form us into self-righteous, independent individuals. That's it. Which is why the goal of spiritual formation has to be divine union. If that's our goal, then you know what happens. Our character increases, which morality is important. But that happens if our goal is divine union, because you start to become like the one that you spend time with. You start to sound like the one that you spend time with. Secondly, though, there's the temptation to be right. And this would be the goal of doctrinal rightness. When when Jesus says to these leaders, you search the scriptures, he's he's not being facetious. He's looking at a group of religious leaders who knew the scripture. Christians, we normally see Pharisees in a negative light. But these were the people who were actually responsible for preserving and advocating for the importance of the oral tradition. Passed down from Moses, right? This this is where the Torah came from. The Pharisees are the one that actually kind of held the Torah together for us. The, The Old Testament that we still read today. The Pharisees played an integral role in giving us both the Talmud, the written record of the oral tradition, and the Masoretic text, which is the Hebrew Bible. The Pharisees knew their stuff. They knew religious history. They knew text. They knew all the original language. Like They were sharp individuals. But Jesus is clear. You can know the entire word and miss the way of Jesus completely. You can know the words of Jesus and miss the way of Jesus completely. All you have to do, all all you have to do is, is look at so many pastoral leaders who are hugely mixed into the political world and see that there are people all over the place that know the words of Jesus but miss the way of Jesus. 
Uh, I remember uh, leading a community of a few hundred college students early on as I was following Christ. And one of the groups that I had launched um, and started up, we, we were there one night when a few new guys came in. They were younger, younger 20-somethings. They came in, and I found out real quickly that one of the guys that was there had a photogenic memory. And I knew this because I quickly found out, and he told me about it. He had memorized 2,500 different pieces of Scripture. 2,500. I didn't believe it. And then he was like, actually, you want me to recite the book of Luke? I was like, stop. And he went on to recite the first four chapters verbatim of the gospel of Luke before I was like, dude, you're, you're boring the heck out of this environment right now. Stop. I get it. You're a smart guy. But he, knew, he had this photogenic memory that was incredible. He knew the words of Jesus. Now, fast forward later that week after I meet this guy, I get a phone call at the office. And I, and I, and I give the caller the benefit of the doubt because it was the first time I heard this voice. But if I was going to be really honest, here's, here's what I thought as I got off the phone. I got off the phone. I was like, that was a gentleman that just disguised his voice as a woman as he was asking where all of the women's only small groups meet around Metro Detroit. But I was like, nah, I, I can't go. I, I don't want to be that judgmental guy. And so I, I let it go for a few weeks. But week after week, as I met with this group in this house, including Mr. Bible Man, I continued to get these phone calls of somebody that started to sound exactly like Mr. Bible Man. Long story short, Religious folks are super weird sometimes. And my man who knew the Bible was also stalking all of the women's only groups by calling up, acting like a woman to get the addresses, and then going to find them. You can, I know you laugh, but it's just sick. It, it's, it's one of these just glaring examples of you can know the words of Jesus and miss the way of Jesus. It has happened nonstop throughout history. When our goal is to be right, when our goal is to have the formula of God loves us and so he made us and we fell short of the glory of God, we have sin in us. And so God had to come as Jesus to pay the penalty that we couldn't pay by ourselves so that we could be with God forever in heaven. If that becomes your goal, mental consent, cognitive assent, uh, assent becomes your goal, you miss the mark. And, and we find ourselves in the company of these religious men that Jesus is speaking to, cognitively sharp, and spiritually blind. And, and can we just suggest the shallowness of this being the goal too? If the goal of our spiritual formation is, 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 is doctrine or intellect, are we actually saying that anybody with a lower IQ or anybody with special needs has missed the mark of heaven? That is one of the dumbest frameworks for theology and who God is that you could possibly conjure up. And so that, that's the second temptation, is the temptation to be right. It's why the goal of our spiritual formation has to be, has to be divine union. And you know what happens if divine union is the goal? What happens is we actually increase in our knowledge and wisdom. In the same way that our character increases. Third temptation is this, the temptation to want the things of God, just not want God. Now, my daughter Lucy is one of the most charming human beings alive. If you know Lucy, you know this to be true. Uh, it's really sickening, actually. Her, her EQ is off the charts. And uh, the other day, she walked into the house after school, and she sits next to me. She throws her arm around my neck, and she goes, Dad, I, I really love you. I said, I love you too, Lou. She's like, well, how was your day? I was like, well, that was good, Lou. 
And she does this pretty frequently. I'm like, I, there were some hard parts. I talked to her about the hard parts. I talked to her about the good parts. And then I just stopped about two minutes into me talking. I got smart enough to just stop and go, wait, what? Are, are you wanting to do something? And she's like, yeah, you mind if I get some screen time? <laughs> and I was like, we'll see. Get a snack first. And she goes to get a snack. And as she goes to get a snack, she looks back. She goes, I did want to hear, though, Dad. I did want to hear. And she walks away. I thought, no, you didn't. But very frequently, my children want the stuff of their father. They just don't really want their father. And that's in all of us. That's in all of us. And this may be the most glaring temptation of the church in America. This may be the most glaring thing about the American church is we want the blessings of God. We want the protection of God. We want the impact of God. We want the influence of God. Most days, if we're honest, we just don't want God. I used to take my first foster daughter, Ania. She was 13 at the time. I used to take her to Blockbuster Video. Anybody remember that? That's crazy. We'd go to Blockbuster Video, and I remember the first time I took her there, she, she wanted to get uh, this vampire movie, um, Twilight. Remember Twilight? And she was infatuated, like, like gross obsessed with the two guys that were the vampires. Wait, one guy was the vampire, another guy was a werewolf? That's what it was. And, and it's just, just, it, it was like, it got a little weird as she was asking if she could get these videos and was obsessing over getting these videos. And so I just decided to have a teaching moment as her foster father. And I said, Ania, have you ever heard of idolatry? <laughs> and she said, yeah, my mama used to take me to idolatry all the time. And I was like, no, no, that's different. Um, I, and, I, and I said that I told her what idolatry was. And it very much gave her the same suggestion that Tim Keller once gave me. He said this, one of my mentors said, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. Anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living at all. And for the Pharisees and the religious leaders, idols were often their own power and their own cultural prominence. It was always tied into religion. For my, myself, I, I get for many of you, your idol, if you're honest, money. Your idol, if you're honest, is, is your work and the accolades and the promotions at work. For me, if I'm really honest, often my idol is, is religious impact. Like I find myself actually reading through the scripture and praying and hoping that God will give me this kingdom-sized impact throughout my life. And I find myself many times going, I want God's impact and what he might do through me more than God. And I just have to be honest with myself about it when I catch myself. The problem with idols, though, is that they never deliver the satisfaction that they actually promise. And so we'll get that impact or we'll get that vocational success that we've been longing for and waiting for for years of our life. And within moments after getting it, the goalposts move, right? The, the goal becomes something different. We get blessed financially after a season of really being in need. We, we see God get us through that month or that season and, and then the goalposts move and we need something more, something different. We get that apartment we've craved, or that relationship that we've been just reeling for for years, going, why doesn't anybody love me? And then we finally find that person, and within the first three months, we're like, ah, they're a little less than perfect. And the goalposts move. 
And this is why the goal of spiritual formation actually has to be divine union and not some of the things that God might give you or might not give you. Only a moment in the presence of God, aware of God's love in Jesus, will deliver a contentment that actually seems otherworldly. And those of you in this room that have experienced that, you know that. You have felt that. And so Mosaic, as as I end here, the whole point of this, the whole point of the services, the whole point of the music, the whole point of the groups and the gatherings and the food and the fun and the sacrament of communion, which we'll take in a second, the whole point of all of it is to actually form a people whose aim is union with God and nothing else. And many of us in this room, we've had this image of God that demands perfection prior to union. This God who sits somewhere in the distance and goes, you need to be morally better before there's union with me. And because of it, your goal has been external behavior and increased morality, and you're tired of striving. And God in Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For some of you, the picture of God is one that demands certitude. God God needs you to know and believe the right things before there is union with God. But this is confusing. You know it. When every shift of culture challenges what you think was right and what you believe with what you're experiencing daily, you know there's a gap there. And, And God in Jesus just says, I come to you in your doubts in your uncertainty, in your unformed theology, I come to you, Emmanuel, God with us. God is exactly like Jesus. There is no unchristlikeness in God. The word of God who came into the world, this is what our aim is. It's a God of presence. has always longed to invite you into relationship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so hear this. As Machu and the band come up, our goal and center is righteousness, not simply rightness. Our goal and center is connectedness, not simply correctness. Our goal and our center is mutual indwelling, not simply moral perfection. Our goal and our center is love, out of which flows right thinking and right living. Divine union is salvation. And as one hymn writer once said, all else is sinking sand. All else is sinking sand. And so, Mosaic, would you stand with me? We're going to sing this last song together. And then Stephanie will come up and lead us through the sacrament of communion. If you didn't get a communion cup, a COVID-friendly communion cup on your way in, as Macho leads through this song, feel free to go to Stephanie and she'll give you one. But let's remember the ultimate aim of this thing we call Christianity. Whether you are coming from the Catholic Church, whether you are, are coming to church for one of the first times in your life and experiencing this community, our aim is to dwell with the one who loves us and longs to dwell with us.